Hi, this is Daniela Camboni, and welcome back to the Daniela Camboni Show here on ITM Trading with what I believe is truly a, a special gift uh, to my audience today. At least it's a gift uh, for myself anytime I have the opportunity and honor of speaking with my guest today. I'd like you all to welcome G. Edward Griffin to the program. He is the author of The Coveted Creature from Jekyll Island and World Without Cancer. He's also the founder of Red Pill University. And of course, The Creature from Jekyll Island is considered by many to be one of the greatest financial books of all time. Uh, many would argue it's a financial Bible and should be required reading in schools across the nation. Mr. Griffin, it's always, uh, like I said, an honor to speak with you. Thank you for giving us some of your time today. Well, thank you, Daniela. It's a pleasure being back on your program. You always have uh, some great questions, and, and I know I'm talking to the choir often when I speak to you because you know all about these things. That, that's, a, that's a real pleasure. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. I was going to say, uh, you know, most of the experts that come on this program, Mr. Griffin, have been influenced or shaped one way or another by your, your, your literature, by your books. You're currently writing a new book, so I'm thrilled that we could be sharing uh, this news uh, with the audience today, and we're going to talk about that. But first, of course, I want to talk about the latest, uh, you know, from the Federal Reserve with you, the banking crisis, the dollar, so much more. But let's start uh, with the banking crisis, because when I interviewed you, you a few years ago for the first time, it was way before Credit Suisse and all the banks went down. You were already warning about the danger signs you were seeing in the banking system. You, you, you explained there were like mushrooms popping up, but at one point or another, the system would fail. So I want to get your thoughts a few years later here of, and you know, post all the dominoes we've seen falling, of your take on, on banks and the state of the, the system today, the health of the system. It's hard to know how to answer that question because it's uh, like cutting a tree log. You can cut it straight across or at an angle, and depending on the angle, the grain looks different, but it's the same tree, it's the same log. And you can look at the banking crisis, as you say, and say that is a crisis in banking. But that's not how I cut the log. I see the crisis is our crisis, the economy crisis, and the banks are going to do very well indeed. The banks are not in crisis, even though they like to have us say the banking crisis and what are we going to do to protect the banks and how do we keep them from failing and all that sort of thing. I think it's kind of a naive view to think that the banks are in trouble because once you understand how how uh, deep and wide their control is over almost every important aspect of our uh, society and our, our, our culture even, certainly our economy, our political system, all of that, these, these uh, as our friends call them, the banksters are right in the middle of all of that. And uh, we, you get to be old like I am and you get a little bit skeptical about these phrases like banking crisis and the health crisis and so forth. And uh, you realize that... Uh, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. So let me, let me clarify why I started off with that little bit of a warning that I'm going to be skeptical about this. Uh, the banks, obviously, are 
allowing this, what we call crisis to happen. Uh, in fact, they created it. But this didn't happen because of some, uh, some atmospheric uh, uh, condition or because the uh, weather was bad or, or because there was a, a virus or because there was anything. It was because the, the banks who own the Federal Reserve System, the mm. Federal Reserve System is a cartel of banks. Mm -hmm. Let's get clear on that. So when we speak of the Federal Reserve, we speak of banks, the big powerful banks. And um, they have, th these people are experts. They know what sound monetary policy is and they know what unsound monetary policy is, and they know that the unsound is more profitable to them than the sound. Sound is good, good banking, good reserves, keeping your promises, considering that when the depositors put their money in your bank that it's their money and not yours. All of these good practices, the bankers know about them, but they don't practice them for a long time. They, they've always pretended to be conservative and very concerned about the economy the welfare of the nation, but it's always been like any other cartel, whether it's a banana cartel or an oil cartel, a banking cartel is no different. It's formed for the benefit of the members of the cartel, period. And uh, they have to go through a lot of effort to convince the politicians and the public that they really care about America. They really care about the economy. And the I'm here to say that the only reason or the extent to which they care about the economy is the extent to which it benefits them. And it has nothing to do uh, with the, the consumers or the depositors. Now, having said all that, let's take a look at it from my skeptical glasses. And what I see is that uh, the banks have decided that this system that they've created a long time ago, which has always benefited them, even the casual observer has to notice that the banks are still in business while a lot of other industries and businesses have gone out of business in the so-called economic bubbles and crashes and all these crises they talk about. The banks always survive and they came out the other side of it very well indeed and having more money, more assets, more, more power than ever before. And so the, it's obvious that these crises are not damaging to the banks. So what is it all about? Why did the banks allow these crises to happen? It's because it's profitable to them. It's a means of, um, of acquiring uh, uh, the assets of the nation gradually and slowly through a process of inflation. That's the simple version. There are other little uh, side uh, eddy currents that are also at play, but the major one is inflation of the, of the uh, economy, the, the, the loss of purchasing power of the dollar. Every time the dollar loses, a, a, I mean, every time the dollar loses one unit of purchasing power, whatever that unit is, somebody gains it. Nobody asks, well, it went to somebody. Who did it go to? And if you want to follow the loss of the purchasing power that the consumer suffered through, the gain came to the, the cartel members, which is a, is a partnership between government and banks. So the gain came to the government and to the Federal, Federal Reserve System, which is the cartel of the banks. So that's it. So now, why would they be doing... Uh, crashing the banking system. Now, we can see that's actually happening. And, yes. uh, and that's what started this whole thing with your question. It's a banking crisis. Well, no, it's not because the banks, in my opinion at least, have decided that this, this game that they've been playing all this time has gone about as far as it can. Uh, they have inflated the money supply hundreds of times greater than any time before in history. 
And even with one-tenth or one-one-hundredth of the inflation that we see now, even in the historical record of one-one-hundredth of that, systems have always collapsed. So what, what are you going to say about it when it's a hundred times greater than anything we've seen before? It, they know it's going to collapse. Actually, when you look at the banking system and the, and the balance sheets on their, on their, uh, their uh, financial summaries, that's already collapsed, but nobody knows it. They're just continuing to pretend like it's still working. And they're pumping money into the economy so fast. It's, it's ridiculous. Nobody in their right mind certainly in the banking industry, nobody dreams or even claims that these debts are going to be repaid. They cannot be repaid. The system is broken, and as I said before, eventually it's going to collapse. So now we come to the question, when is it going to collapse? Well, it's collapsing right now, if it hasn't already, and the banks are leading it. They want it to collapse. Now, isn't that an interesting, funny thing for me to say? Why yes. would the banks want their banking system to collapse? And the answer is very simple, because they have something better in mind, at least better for them. And that won't involve the old traditional use of money at all. Money will disappear as we have known it. They have this thing called the central bank digital currencies, which is, a, is something they will control. It won't be your money or mine, it's their money. We'll be allowed to use it if we obey their dictates and they'll have complete control over us. This is why they are crashing the banking system now, because they want the dollar to collapse, so the people will be desperate, and they'll be looking to the same people that caused the problem to create a solution to the problem. And people will be so desperate, they'll accept anything, including this, this horrible thing called uh, central bank digital currencies. Now that, it took a long time to answer your question, but it's because they have, they have an idea of something better for them and worse for us. And is this, and I want to I want to focus on the central bank digital currencies because you, you make such a clear and important point, Mr. Griffin. Um, is this the great reset for you that we well, it's you know, the talk it's of? the banking it's the banking side of the great reset, uh, it's that which is the major side of it. So I would say yes, it's the major major view of the great reset. It's the what is the great reset? Well. That's not just monetary, it's social and cultural as well. And um, it includes even the dehumanization of us. It, 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 you know, it, it includes a lot of things other than money. But money is at the core of it because it takes a lot of money to do these things. And uh, these people don't have that money. They create it out of nothing. That's the game. That's always been the game. So, yes, I, it's, uh, it, I, it's definitely that. And I want to speak, I want to get back to the dehumanization, but let's just sit on central bank digital currencies. I thought of you because I had, an, I had someone on recently who said it's interesting that they almost stopped talking about central bank digital currencies. You remember it was a summer when FedNow was coming out, and yes, we know that's the plumbing. It's not really a central bank digital currency, but there was a lot of talk even in mainstream media, which never really, you know, brings up central bank digital currencies, but talk of a digital dollar. And in, in fact, you know, New Year's Day, we saw Christine Lagarde saying, uh, you know, talking of, of a central bank digital currency and how it will come to, to, to Europe soon. And yay, let's ring in a wonderful digital euro and it's going to make life wonderful for everyone. But since then, right, would you would you say it's been a, a few weeks where they've stopped or a few months where they've stopped talking about it? Maybe there's a reason why. Maybe they don't want folks revolting. I mean, I'm just, 
you know, these are all hypotheses, yes, I, but just, it's a good question. I, I do find it interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it till just now, but now that I sort of rewind the tapes and play them for the past month or two or three, it does seem that there's uh, less attention to the, to the central bank digital currency. And that, of course, is your question. Why would they, why would they play that game and not talk about it anymore? I think, I'm going to guess at this, but I think if that's true and the, and the, and the uh, news has been tapered down on this issue, I think it would be because uh, in the beginning they were just talking about how wonderful it would be, how convenient it would be, and how it would solve so many problems for us, and how it would even ensure our, uh, our uh, privacy and, and put those banks in their place, you know. But now that the word is out and people like you and me and other commentators are yelling from the tops of the roofs that, hey, this is not what you think it is, and we're talking about the, the social credit system that's going to be attached to it, the loss of personal liberty, the health issues that are involved, all of those things, alternative media is still very vocal and reaching a lot of people. I think it was their decision, if, this is, if, they, have it, if they have indeed backed off, they would certainly be wise to do so because people are getting wise to it. So they would rather not have people talking about it at all. I, I, I think I think I I think so. And I, and I, because my biggest concern at the start, you know, when, when someone would come up to me and say, well, should we really be concerned about central bank digital currencies? I mean, we already use, you know, credit cards and we use already use debit cards. They already know everything we're buying. But folks weren't seeing, to your point, that it goes way beyond just tracking, you know, whether you bought yogurt today. <laughs> right, way <laughs> beyond that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. When people are waking up, now they don't want us to talk about it. They want us to think about war or some other crisis that they'll try and maneuver to distract us from the drama and the, and the COVID uh, pandemic that never really was a real pandemic. And the Great Reset and digital currencies, they don't want us to be too informed on that topic. I wanted to bring up and go back to your point about dehumanization because, uh, you know, I've seen other interviews where you've said this is what they're trying to do. The elites are trying to convert humans into robots so that they will do what they were told, not capable of, disobe of disobeying or disagreeing. I think this is what we're up to. Now, a lot of people are going to say, Mr. Griffin, what do you mean? Convert us into robots? Explain. <laughs> Well, what is a robot? A robot is a, is a machine. I guess you could start with that. Um, whether it's a, a mechanical machine or a biological machine, uh, depending on how you define machine, it's something that has its own internal energy and it, it does things that in accordance with a, a goal and a method and a plan and so forth. And robots are robots, but we think of them in terms of our comic book uh, depiction as being made of metal, uh, but uh, a robot could be a biological robot. In fact, some people uh, say that we are actually robots, that uh, we were created. Uh, well, let's not worry about how we were created because that's a big controversial topic. But the fact is that we were created through some process and some intelligence, a great deal of design and engineering went into us, and we're self-propelling, uh, self we're self-fueling. We, um, uh, we repair each other. Uh, uh, anyway, we have goals and so forth. So it might be considered that we are already robots, but uh, I don't look at it that way. But the point is that uh, we're talking here about dehumanizing what used to be humans and 
getting control of their central nervous system and their brains and their even their muscles and determining how they act and what they think, how they feel. And, and the, you addressed a very important point, which is what these uh, elitists are really hoping for, I believe, is to create a, sub, a subcategory, a subspecies of the human um, being where the mentality has been altered in such a way that they will become totally um, path, uh, passive. They will do what they're told, and as you said, they, they will not complain. Uh, they won't be incapable of questioning authority. They just say, I'm here to serve, and that's it. I think that's what they want to create. And, um, of course, they have the other agenda, which is to prolong their own lifespan in some way so that they could live forever or at least a great deal longer than anybody else. So it's, it's weird. It's like a science fiction story, but it's real, and you can see it every day in the news. I, I know this is going to be a loaded question and probably not one you can just answer <laughs> on this show, but when we speak of they, I mean, for you, it's not the political leaders that we see on camera. I mean, this is a whole other layer. I mean, who is behind the science fiction? Well, that's a good question. I think it's easy to figure out some of them because that's where the money is concentrated. Look around and see who has the most money in the world. And uh, I think you're, you're pretty good to guess that those people, at least, are in that very small group. Now, there are others as well, no doubt. But so you're looking at people like, uh, well, the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers. I mean, those are easy marks because they do control huge quantities of the money. Between those two family dynasties, I imagine you're talking about 80 to 90 percent of the world's assets and indirectly in, under their control. So uh, that's huge. If they're not involved in this, I don't know who would be. But there are other people who are in that circle. And I don't know whether the occult gets involved in here or not. I sometimes suspect that the, there is an occultish uh, layer, but I don't know what it is. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because you come eventually to the point where you say to yourself, well, it really, I'd like to know, but it doesn't make much difference who it is as long right. as we know that it, they are right. there. What do we do about it? And uh, so I found I, out, uh, Danielle, a long time ago yeah. that the tools that these people use, uh, or the tool, actually, the, the single most important tool they use to accomplish their objective is an ideology called collectivism. They get the rest of us to go along as suckers and agree to everything that they want to do in the name of collectivism, which is the ideology that the group is more important than the individual, and that therefore the individual must be sacrificed, if necessary, for the greater good of the greater number. Now, there are a lot of people that believe that, and they are the ones who are the minions that do the dirty work of these elitists at the top. But it's the tool that they all use, and if we could somehow awaken an awareness on the part of us humans, real humans, uh, that that is, uh, has a counterpart, uh, and that is the opposite of collectivism, is individualism, which is uh, that the individual is the center of, of society and the center of human rights and so forth. We could defeat them regardless of who they are, whether they're Rockefellers or Rothschilds or, or some other wealthy family or a large corporation. They, they all can be defeated with individualism. I, and, and I think that's such a key and positive point because, and I don't want that message to be lost because I know a lot of times people, you know, watch these videos, they get depressed, they're looking at the state of affairs, but to remember that we can make a difference. 
we can make a change. Well, we can and we, we shall. Uh, I pro probably have said this many times, perhaps on your program, but I'll say it again. It's worth Please. repeating. Um, yes. History has always been written by the very small group. In, in my estimation, I would say the, the great movements of history have always been determined by less than 1% of the population. The 1% or less are the thought leaders, the originators of an idea. They've got some, they, they have an idea that is like, like a flame that'll just, a prairie fire. It sets, sets fire in the brains of, of millions of people. And, and they will attract around them a 3% group, which are the doers and the uh, movers and shakers. And then that total of 3% will attract, including their own group, another quantity until they have 15% of the population who will be the workers and who will say, yes, that's a good idea, and they'll make sacrifices, and they'll be the, like the soldiers in the, in the movement. And the rest of the people have no idea of what's going on, have no interest in knowing about it. They don't want to be bothered with the details, except at the other end of the spectrum, there's another 15% quite often working in opposite. So what I'm saying is for us to... Uh, to make a difference in history, all we need to do is have that 1%, then the 3% of the influencers like you, my dear, and like me, Thank we're you. an influencer. <laughs> yes, and yes. I, well, we try to be anyway. You are the <laughs> and then original we are influencer. We are attracting the 15%, and with that, we will win. It's just, it happens all the time in history. I wanted to know, uh, because you know, I mentioned that a lot of people come on the show saying how, how you changed their life, influenced them to get into you know, finance, write books, whatever. And one such person is David Rogers Webb, who's the author of The Great Taking. I'm not sure if you read it or have thoughts on the book, but basically you know, it, it talks about The Great Taking, how, how they want to take everything we own from you know, property to the cash in our banks, everything um, for, you know, this great reset that, that he lays out. Uh, did you read the book or I, I believe he reached out to you, but I just want to know if you have any thoughts on the great taking. Oh, yes, I, he did reach out to me. And uh, actually, he, he came over uh, from Sweden a couple of weeks ago and we spent some days, a couple of days together oh, wow. uh, talking about this thing and what can be done about it and, and what, what role we play in, in mobilizing that 15 percent. And uh, yes, and he, he is quite an amazing person. I mean, it, I thought I knew a lot about the monetary system. And, but what I realized when I read his book and I heard, heard his, some of his presentations, I had no knowledge of that part of it at all. I was completely blindsided by that. So it just goes to show you that we, we have always much to learn, no matter how much we think we already know. Well, you so are this guy, <laughs> he blew the whistle. And now the cat is out of the bag. And um, you're going to see, I think, a huge cannonball going down the, the aisle here. People are going to wake up and say, what? You're going to take all my, my retirement benefits? You're going to take my house, my car, and have legal possession of it? And they changed the law and I didn't know about it? And that's going to, that should wake up a lot of people. Um, to my point that I know, can we talk about it, Mr. Griffin, that you're writing, you're currently writing a brand new book? Oh, well, that's partly true. I am currently writing a brand new book, but I've been doing that since the day after 9-11. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
but you're close. Uh, it's 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 there because people are are just can't wait for you to publish something new. Yes, well, I can't either because I have a lot of things to say, and mostly about this issue of individualism versus collectivism. That's really what the main thesis of the book is about. But once you understand how that ideology plays into the current events, you realize that all the crises that we're going through today are a result of that argument of, of uh, collectivism. So yes, that's uh, I'm working on it and I hope to finish it soon. And uh, I mentioned to you earlier that I wanted to arouse some interest in it now before the book is published. So what I decided to do is to go back to my my notes and my manuscript that's already there and pull out the the most cogent information I already have on this issue of individualism versus collectivism. And I put it all together in a, uh, a document. I called it the chasm. And it's kind of a preview of the main argument and the material that's going to be in the book. So I thought, well, maybe that'll hurt the sales of the book. And I thought, you idiot. Who cares if it hurts the sales of the book? It'll, uh, it'll inform people, and maybe we don't even need the book after a while because we will have won the war. So uh, I would like to invite anybody that would like to have a copy of that, uh, of that document called The Chasm. Uh, it's, it's available free as a download. Just uh, send us, uh, write us an email and send it to realityzone.com uh, chasm. And okay. uh, and just say I, well, I want you. a copy of the booklet. Thank and, you for uh, that. Um, I'll send it out. I want to get back to this cannonball you speak of because we always want to equip the folks watching with a game plan, with a strategy. I spoke about this with um, you know the author of the Great Taking as well. Of you know what should we be doing? I know you've spoke of you know. Maybe you should think twice before having your cash in the bank. Uh, but you know, should we be getting you know a citizenship somewhere else, or you know, wh how, what should we be thinking of as a plan B or a plan C? Okay, one of my favorite topics. It's, Yay! <laughs> it's quite it's seemingly logical that we all want to know how can we survive this thing. Naturally, yes. we have to survive. How can we survive? So the first step. Yeah. So the first. Uh, level of reaction usually is how do we escape it? But we cannot escape it unless we s stop it. So even though I think it's perfectly fair for us to talk about how we can prolong our security and how we can survive while others perhaps are devoured by it, none of us will survive until or unless we stop it. So we mustn't talk about should we do this to protect our assets and should we go to the hills and should we have gold and silver should we have food supplies should we have ammunition all these things like you know it's this these are all defensive things the purely defensive is doomed to defeat unless we think also in terms of a, a counterattack having our own goals our own objectives our own initiatives unless we take the initiative in this battle we will not win so with that context, I'll say that obviously we should have food, we should have shelter, we should have we should be out of debt unless that debt is producing income. Uh, we should be as secure as possible when everything else is failing around us, and that means food, water. Uh, it means you have to be you have to be among friends. You better have yourself a little family around you, not necessarily your blood family, but friends who know what's going on. And you can help each other. If you have an emergency, you can come to each other's help. You should have some kind of a skill 
that is, is valuable in times of a crisis that other people will want and so forth. But having said all of that, and, and gold and silver, of course, are very valuable to that. You should have some, whatever you can afford to put aside. But in addition to all of that, we need to be thinking in terms of how do we turn the tables and stop this thing? Otherwise, it's all wasted. Uh, and amen to, to that, uh, Mr. Griffin. But yes, uh, food, water, community. And then you mentioned gold and silver. Many in our audience, uh, obviously avid uh, believers in gold and silver. If you can just talk a little of why, I mean, do you like it because it's, is it the only asset that could really be outside the system? Well, no, it's not the only asset that could be outside the system uh, because food would be an asset outside the system. That's why the system doesn't want us to grow our own food. They don't, mm -hmm. not even in the city. They don't want you to grow your uh, cabbage or carrots in your backyard. Heavens no. Uh, that would make you a little bit independent. So, um, but gold and silver has always been historically a, a, a sort of a, a refuge, a, a means of preserving what little savings we might have. And it's also used as barter in exchange for other things that we might need. But in times of great crisis, uh, you can't eat gold and silver, you do need food. So there, it's, not the, it's not the perfect answer, but it's, it's part of the answer. And I would recommend that everybody have it. Um, so, but what, what, are, what are the things that we can do to uh, turn it around? How do we win this battle? And um, I'd like to take just a moment on that, on my ideas. I, I, that's the reason I created something called Red Pill University. Now that sounds kind of strange. What's a Red Pill University? Red Pill is a very popular phrase. We all know what it means. It's to take the Red Pill man and wake up to reality, see life the way it really is. And to call it that a university is kind of a mixture of something academic and something very popular. But anyway, it's, you get the idea. It's a place where we learn as much as possible about the red pills out there, and there are lots of them. It's not just in banking. It's everywhere you look. Uh, there's, um, there's information that we thought we knew, but it was false. And so we have to be informed so we don't do the wrong things. Now, after that, what does Red Pill University have in addition to an informational source like these, this archive that I'm talking about and we're building? I think we already have the largest video archive in the world on topics of this kind, and it's all available free to the public. And, uh, but that's just the start. Information is great. You can't win without it, but you need more than information. You need action. And so what else do we have? We're in the process now of building what we call campuses of Red Pill University. Mm -hmm. And we want to have at least one in every county in the United States. And in other countries around the world, too, this same process is, is, is in fact, it looks like we're gonna have a, a, a campus in um, the UK here pretty soon, um, because they have the same problems as we do. And the yeah. purpose of a campus is to organize at least, um, oh, maybe the typical campus will have 60 to 100 people these are awake, awake people and dedicated people. And I'm here to tell you, if you have 60 to 100 people who know what's going on in the world and they understand this issue of collectivism versus individualism and aren't going to fall for all the tricky phrases and gimmicky appeals that are being offered to uh, patriots nowadays, you know, and, and they're willing to spend some time on it, you can dominate the political and cultural system of your community because our enemies have done this with just a few few people. So we want to we want to be influential in the who is on the board of supervisors in every county. We want to be influential in who is the sheriff, 
who's on the Board of Education, who's on the City Council, and all of those kinds of things. And we want to build a national and then an international movement from the ground up, not from the top down like most people want to. Well, who are you going to vote for president? Like, that's going to solve everything. We get somebody in as president. Even if we got somebody in as president who really understood these things, if he really stood in the way, they'd get rid of him. You know, a bullet is pretty cheap. Well, 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 and, well that, that made me think. Do you vote or do you just abstain from voting? Well, that's, uh, I vote. I vote. Mainly because I don't want to, I don't want to uh, give the appearance to anybody that I've given up. But I also know how crooked and crook, corrupt the voting system is. I'm not, I'm not foolish on that. But you bet, I vote, because I want to keep that system alive you... long enough so that when we become influential, then the voting will eventually mean something. Are you ever, ever I mean, look, your influence is, is, is worldwide. Like I said, your book has been read by millions. Are you ever concerned for your safety that they would want to stop you and not have you get your message out to the masses? Well, I'm not concerned about it because I know it's true. Uh, and I don't, try not to worry about it because if you worry about things like that, that uh, the only thing you can do about it is quit doing what you're doing, which I couldn't possibly do because, uh, <laughs> yes, I think about those things, but not too much. Mr. Griffin, you are a national treasure and we need to... We need to protect you and keep you around forever. Um, at the start, I didn't ask you how you're doing, but I mean, you look fantastic. And I know in past interviews, you know, you told me you, you've never even taken a Tylenol. I mean, to your point, you don't you don't take drugs for ailments. No, I don't. No, um, I think the uh, the only drug you might call it that I'm on right now is thyroid. And it's not a drug at all because it comes from from animals. Um, so it, it's kind of a funny experience. You know, once in a while, my wife will say to me, look, there's a free testing service coming through. Not free, but inexpensive. <laughs> right. And uh, let's go see what our test results are. OK, we go. Right. And and so I go for the interview and the little nurse is so always the same. She said, well, Mr. Griffin, what vet, what meds are you on? And right. she's got her pencil all ready to start writing. And I say, meds, meds. You mean like uh, you mean like pills and stuff like that? <laughs> Right. She's, she's yeah, meds. She's getting ready medication. To, right, right. Yeah, medication. Right. I said, oh, I don't I don't yeah. have any. Oh, she said, You don't understand. What medications are you on? Right. So we go through that right. and oh, look, I'm not on any. You're not on any? And I no. Oh my. <laughs> well that or then she's calling the psychologist, right? This man over here thinks he's not on any medication. It's impossible. Yeah. Yeah, right? he's a loony. Um, we better we better lock him up. <laughs> so people are gonna say, What's your secret? I mean, I know you eat well. You exercise, anything we should know? <laughs> well, actually, it's no secret at all. What I do is what everybody knows is healthy. And uh, I'm not really good at what I do. I mean, I try to be healthy, but I slip. I mean, I'm right now trying to kick the, the sugar addiction. I love chocolate-covered <laughs> peanut butter cups. And I know they're not good for me. So, so I have, I, I'm not perfect in, in, by any means. But I okay. try very hard to keep the toxic things out of my system. I gave up smoking a pipe a long time ago. I've, I've reduced coffee drinking down to a little bit of coffee, about this much in a mocha now and then. And uh -oh. uh, I just yeah. try and avoid all the toxic things out there. Alcohol, I, I used to drink a lot of it, but I hardly drink any of it now. And um, so I try and stay away from the toxins. I stay away from 
electromagnetic devices as much as possible. I always turn off Wi-Fi unless I have to use it. I, mm. My smartphone is always off unless I ex I'm expecting a call or I'm traveling and so forth. I, t I think that electromagnetic radiation is a lot more toxic than most people realize. Probably, and yep. I Not probably. There's a lot of research on that, yeah. So I try and avoid that. But that's it. I exercise a little bit, and um, and my good wife fixes good food for me. Otherwise, I'd probably be <laughs> eating junk food. So that's it. Okay. Oh. Well, I think it's also reassuring or comforting for folks to know that I like how you said you eat a Reese's peanut butter cup once in a while and it's and you're not perfect right because sometimes we see these influencers and we put them on pedestals and we're like we have to do everything that Mr. Griffin's doing um so like I said it's comforting to know uh that you too are not perfect well you can you can you can put your you can bet the farm on that one you won't lose the farm <laughs> well Thank you so much, Mr. Griffin. As always, I, I, I always say, you know, whenever you give me any amount of time, I am so grateful and I invite everyone to sign up for your, for your newsletter, Need to Know News. It's free, right? You yes, just get on, the, you get on mm -hmm. the email list. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll send and, that booklet out, The Chasm. And you'll send a booklet out to us and we'll or put the link It'll be a download, up. actually. It's a download. Download. Mm -hmm. All right. Send us the link. We'll put it up. And uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Be well, and we will see you soon. Yes, Danielle, and thanks for inviting me, and, and I'm looking forward to the next one. Me too. And thank you all for watching. I truly hope you, you enjoyed that. I know I surely did. Um, so be sure to stay tuned to the Daniela Cambone Show here on ITM Trading. And as always, I know we covered a lot of topics. I know we spoke gold, silver, monetary policy, central bank digital currencies. If you feel the need to discuss any of this, to devise a strategy, you can always reach out to one of my incredible colleagues over at ITM Trading. Book a Calendly appointment in the link below, and uh, someone will, will help you out with that. That's it for me. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you soon.